Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning. We have a special treat again this week with Dr. Branch. And so Dr. Alan Branch is the professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Seminary, where he has served served since 2001. He earned his Master's of Divinity and Doctor of Philosophy from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. Dr. Branch currently serves as a research fellow in the Christian Ethics for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and regularly presents in academic settings and contributes for media outlets. He has served as a chaplain in the United States Army Reserves from 2009 to 2013, and he served in a tour in the Middle East from 2011 to 2012. He enjoys a regular preaching ministry and has served as interim pastor for churches in Kansas and Missouri. Dr. Branch and his wife, Lisa, have two daughters, and Pastor Lane is, is excited for you to hear from Dr. Branch today to be encouraged and challenged from the Word of God. LifePoint, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Alan Branch. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you. He mentioned our two daughters. We also have two son-in-laws and three grand dogs. I don't have any grandchildren. I have three grand dogs. Ethan was praying. He mentioned uh, in his prayer uh, a word of thankfulness that all of us have. I have an important topic to address with you this morning. I'm going to do it. I want to say a couple of words about decision on Friday. Okay, I teach ethics. It's what I do for a living. First of all, so you'll understand what happened. Uh, the Supreme Court has not declared abortion illegal throughout the United States. What they've said is they pushed it back to the states, and each state gets to decide for themselves. I'm not a jurist, so at this point I'm just speaking as a citizen with you, just uh, someone who looks at these things. Um, We live in a republic, and it seems to me that the Supreme Court's decision is in keeping with the notion that we live in a republic. And um, one of the reasons why our neighbors who are perhaps ideologically situated to a different position than you and I uh, are upset is it's not just this decision, but they understand, well, let me just state it this way. Many people who are ideologically see themselves as progressives and to the left have seen the Supreme Court as an extra legislative black branch. And by that, what I mean is that if they couldn't accomplish something through referendums or they couldn't accomplish it through all the state legislatures in the majority of the nation, uh, they counted on a, a progressive Supreme Court which was going to act in an extra legislative manner for them. What is frustrating, and they're smart enough to know that if a court would rule like this on this issue, there's any number of other issues that they've been very successful with over the last 55 to 60 years, the Supreme Court situated this way on the issue of abortion would would feel. You have a job in front of you, so let me say a couple of things. You have a job in front of you. You live in basically a conservative state. The laws for abortion in Missouri are going to be far, far different than they are in Illinois right across the river. You also need to know the most common form of abortion in the United States today is a pharmaceutical or chemical abortion, the abortion pill. 
and the Biden administration has confirmed a rule that was started during, or I say solidified, I don't know the right term, they've made it permanent, a rule that was started during COVID, which means um, people can get the abortion pill through the mail. So what that's going to mean is, even if you're in a state that has very conservative laws about abortion from here on out, people will be able to get the abortion pill through the mail from other states. So it's going to be wild and woolly for a while. Here's what I want you to know. If I could say a couple of things. I am pro-life down to my toenails. I've been around Baptist all my life. If there's one weakness in our argumentation when it comes to abortion, here it is. I hear Baptists talk all about the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman, what she's done, what she's doing, the woman, the woman. Last time I checked, it takes two people to make a baby. And we need to start talking more about men taking responsibility for their morals and taking responsibility for the children they father. And when a woman has an abortion, very rarely is it her decision alone. There are other people pressuring her and God help the men that father children and then force a woman to go get an abortion. And I'm pleading with you to share the gospel, to stand for life, but make sure you do it in a way that honors God and you have some sense of the difficulties associated with those issues. It's going to be uh, very, very different for, um, for our friends uh, who are ideologically situated for a far different position from us that's not pro-life. Uh, my advice is uh, stay off social media for the next month. You'll do a lot better if you do. Well, now that I've left that easy topic, I, my <laughs> subject today is engaging my friends with the gospel in the light of current attitudes concerning LGBTQ issues. Um, today is the last Sunday in June, and June has traditionally been known for the transition from spring to summer. It's the month for weddings. But in 2022, June is now known as Pride Month, a month-long celebration and affirmation of people who self-identify somewhere along the LGBTQ spectrum. The reason June is Pride Month is connected with events at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, New York City, back in 1969. The Stonewall Inn was really a rather seedy bar, had mafia connections, and it was a known hangout for, um, for cross-dressing prostitutes. That's, that's what it was known for back in the day. That's just a fact. That's not an ad hominem. That's just the way things were. And on the early morning of June 28, 1969, the New York City police raided the Stonewall Bar. They had a vice raid. Well, the patrons there were already at a high amplitude of kind of uh, very tense feelings for a couple of reasons. First of all, the New York City police had already raided that bar on June 24th. And then I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not trying to make you laugh. I, and it's just a fact that earlier that day, on, or earlier on the previous day, June 27th, um, Judy Garland's funeral had taken place in uptown New York. And she is an icon for homosexual males. And so the men at that bar were already in a sense of grief because of that. And they were already amped up because they'd been raided on June 24th. They get raided again about four days later, and they rioted, and they, a violent riot ensued with the New York City police. It's now known as the Stonewall Inn protest is what it's called, but it's really a riot. 
And because that occurred uh, in the month of June, this is considered by many people the, uh, the starting date for LGBTQ civil rights movement. And so that's why June is Pride Month. It goes back to this riot at the Stonewall Inn in 1969. But the Stonewall riots did not occur in a vacuum. This was June 1969. Just two years earlier, our nation had experienced the, and I put this in scare quotes, the summer of love. I was born in October of 67, but the summer of 67 was known as the summer of love in San Francisco. This is the sexual revolution. Scott McKenzie recorded a song. Uh, it was made famous. He made it famous. It was written by one of the guys from the Mamas and the Papas. But kids, you won't know this song, but the senior adults will remember it's called, If You're Going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Yes. For those who come to San Francisco, summertime will be a love in there. The way they use the term love in they are picking, the author of the song was picking up on sit-ins. During the civil rights movement, young African Americans would often have sit-ins at segregated lunch counters as a way to assert their rights as a, as a citizen. So the people in the sexual revolution picked up on that idea of a sit-in, but they said, we are having a love-in. And the streets of San Francisco, gentle people with flowers in their hair, um, what you need to understand is when it talks about gentle people with flowers in their hair, what that means is unbridled sexual promiscuity and having as many sexual partners as you can with whomever you want. The only rule was supposedly that all these things are consensual. But this was all part of the sexual revolution. And don't miss the word revolution. When people talk about the sexual revolution, that word revolution, they are not using it like we would use the term American Revolution from 1776. They are borrowing the term from Marxism. And in Marxism, revolution is the stage where the proletariat rise up and you have a dictatorship of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie and they overthrow all the structures of society. And uh, if you want to know what revolution means to a Marxist, it usually means several million innocent people are going to die. But nonetheless, they take the term revolution from Marxism and that's why they called it the sexual revolution. We are overturning all the structures of morality. We, all these bourgeois notions and what they mean by these bourgeois notions of sexual uh, morality are Judeo-Christian sexual ethics, which says that sex was designed by God to be experienced in heterosexual monogamous marriage. So that's what they're overthrowing. So the moral debate we are seeing today and which you're experiencing about which sexual practices and identities are acceptable is really the latest outworking of the sexual revolution in the 60s. And if you don't see it in that context, you're going to miss everything that's going on. Given the enormous tectonic shifts in morality in the 55 years since the Summer of Love in 1967 and the 53 years since Stonewall, how do we engage our friends and our neighbors and our family with the gospel in the light of current attitudes concerning LGBTQ issues? And I realize this topic caused a great deal of angst for many people in this, when you even address the topic. So though Christians are frequently and usually characterized as unkind and hateful, I, 
When I think about the conversations I've had with other Christians on this topic and the people I've prayed with about this topic, I don't encounter hate. I have found that the Christians that I pray with about this topic believe Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. I have found that Christians who love Jesus want to live at peace with all people. That's the desire. And yet, here's the challenge is that LGBTQ advocacy groups have successfully leveraged influence with most major corporations. So much so that success in many companies no longer depends just on one's competency and skills in a job task, nor collegiality with colleagues. Success in many companies also depends on actively identifying as an ally of LGBTQ identities. And in many cases, what's happening is If you are a born-again Christian and you hold to Judeo-Christian sexual ethics, sex is defined by God as one man, one woman, and heterosexual monogamous marriage, there are corporations that might say things. They want to push you into a professional ghetto is what it is. Well, you can work, but you'll never get beyond this point. If you hold to those views, this might not be the company for you. If you hold to those views, you might have a job, but you'll never get promoted beyond here. And some of you experienced that already in your career and in your professions. But for many here, this issue is neither political and um, in some ways not really ethical. It's not even professional. You don't think of LGBTQ as Pride Month and you don't think of Stonewall or the Summer of Love in San Francisco. You think of a friend who's gay. Uh, You think... of a brother or sister, a child. I've never preached on this topic in uh, as many people as I'll be preaching to this morning where someone doesn't come to me after the service and say, you know, my son, my daughter, grandson, granddaughter. For some, it's an ex-spouse. I've had many conversations with folks whose husband or wife left them to embrace an LGBTQ identity. It's a child, it's a grandchild, it's a friend. It's somebody you know at school and you really like. And the grief you feel is almost inconsolable. And, how do, and the question is, how do I maintain my Christian convictions and maintain a relationship with a child or a friend or a grandchild who says, I'm somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum? And for someone, the issue is far more personal than that. It's you. And you felt same-sex attraction or you felt some conflicted ideas about gender and when you listen to what some people like PFLAG or the Human Rights Campaign say, you think, and you look at their <laughs> extremely well-produced web pages and online videos, you think, well, that looks like a path to freedom for me, and that looks like a path to peace for me, and I don't know if I want to continue with this Jesus thing or with this gospel thing. It is impossible to address every variable on this, serm- on this topic in one sermon, But if you'll engage your mind for about 30 minutes, all I'm asking is that you would give about 30 minutes of your life to listen to a Christian perspective at a broad level on these issues. And I am giving a very different perspective from what the world says. And I understand that, but I hope to do it with grace and kindness, with love. And what I want you to know is this. If you're here and you feel like you identify somewhere across the LGBTQ spectrum, is that God loves you and I love you and Jesus died for you. That's what I want you to know. And um, so let's say a few things if I can. First, 
Let's give some basic gospel foundations. Some basic gospel foundations. I think too often we run to Genesis 19 and Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and all those are inspired scripture. But I think we forget to start with what it is we preach. And so let me say a few things. First of all, the good news is for everyone. The Bible says God so loved the world except for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. No. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I want you to know God loves you wherever you're at, whatever it is you are struggling with and whatever feelings of your, your child, your grandchild, God loves you, God loves that person. And furthermore, the gospel is for everyone is reaffirmed in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've, uh, Ethan mentioned I've served an interim pastor in a lot of churches. I have. Some of those interims have been more successful than others. Amen, Lisa. But um, uh, some of them, uh, yeah, some of them have been more successful than others. But here's what I've discovered. I've never been to a church that says we don't want to grow. Every church says, oh, yeah, we want to grow. We want to grow. I say, okay, great. You want to grow. You want to reach more people for Christ. Let me tell you what that looks like. We don't want to do all that, but we want to grow. Okay. And what many people mean is when they say they want to grow is, go ye therefore into all the world and to the nice moral middle class without a lot of problems and they're already kind of cleaned up. That's not what the Great Commission says. It says, go ye therefore into all the nations with all their stuff. So let me give you a word of caution. It is a lot easier to talk about love. I'm, I'm stepping back from the LGBTQ topic this morning for just a second and talking about evangelism in general. It's a lot easier to talk about loving lost people in general than it is any particular lost person as an individual. Because the lost people in general, that's amorphous and we can get teary-eyed about that. It's a lot more difficult, stepping away from our topic this morning, for example, to share the gospel with someone who has a persistent drug abuse problem and you think they're getting somewhere and you think they're getting somewhere and then we're right back to where we started from again. And some of you have been through that cycle with family members and it can be frustrating. At some point, our compassion meter just wears out on those issues. It's going to cost you something to love an LGBTQ neighbor. But it's worth it. It's worth it. For God so loved the world. Go ye therefore into all nations. The gospel is for everyone. Secondly, the cross is always an offense. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says we preach the cross. Foolishness to the world. You know this passage. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. It's foolishness to the world. I want to remind everyone here. Our basic message to the world is this. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter was crucified on a Roman cross between two thieves. And that's the answer to your sin problem. He also rose from the dead. And someday he's coming back riding on a white horse. That's our message. You understand. The world thinks that's nuts. So the cross is always an offense. And many times I've had people ask me questions that are kind of along this trajectory. How can I share the gospel and share the good news of the cross and the empty tomb without my friends thinking I'm a, a, a bit off or a bit crazy? And the answer is there ain't no way to do that. It's been 2,000 years of that for the church. You know our secular friends are just, they cringe when they hear that we sing songs at the church that say things like this. Why can wash away my sin? Nothing but the of Jesus, the blood? Because who are you people? So the cross is always an offense. 
My advice is this, embrace the scandal of the cross because it's an offense to the world, but it's God's message of salvation. It's the cross and the cross and the cross. It's always a scandal. Just have to get over that. Third, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The cross is always an offense, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us are better than someone else. One of my favorite preachers of all time was an African-American pastor who's passed away now, Dr. E.V. Hill, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, Los Angeles, California. Dr. Hill said something I'll never forget in a sermon one time at uh, Roswell Street Baptist Church, or at least I heard him in a Bible conference. He said, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we want to make it say, y'all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, somebody else. No! All of us. I am not better than my LGBTQ neighbor. May I remind you, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. All of us are what in our trespasses and sins? We're dead. If you haven't, if you've been around anything dead here lately, it has an aroma. That's us apart from Christ. We are dead in our trespasses, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Church, get it in your mind. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so let's keep those gospel foundations in mind. With those three big gospel foundations in mind, here's the second big point. is a very brief summary of science and LGBTQ issues. I wrote a book in 2016. It's already a bit out of date. The science moves so quickly. Homosexuality. Born this way, question mark. Homosexuality. Science and the gospel. But when reflecting on scientific issues and what science can and can't tell us about LGBTQ identities, the average person is probably more influenced by Lady Gaga than any research or data which they've read. In 2011, pop sensation uh, Lady Gaga, Stefani Angelina Germanotti, released her monster hit, Born This Way. And among other things in the song, she asserts, no matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. And she then uh, parallels LGBTQ identities with ethnicity, celebrating people who are, and I quote, black, white, or beige, cola, she means Hispanic or Orient made. So by paralleling LGBTQ identities with ethnic heritage, she is saying, just as someone is born with a particular ethnic heritage, so we are also born with a particular sexual identity. And so the moral argument she makes is only as strong as her analogy. To what degree are LGBTQ identities like uh, someone's ethnic heritage? And I'll just tell you very quickly, they're not. They're not the same thing. The science incontrovertibly shows that. So let me say a few things. First of all, uh, correlation but not causation. When people say they found something that causes biologically or genetically hom homosexuality. When you read the peer review data, what you find is in the article, they'll talk about correlation. What that means is correlation refers to the degree to which two variables are connected to each other. And so there have been some studies that have found some low level of correlation between something in the brain or something genetically or something hormonally 
and an increased percentage of LGBTQ identities, but no one's found causation. So let me try to explain correlation versus causation like this. Correlation just talks about there's two variables that are connected in some way and we're not sure how. So let me try to use the year 2015 an example. Let's imagine you do a research on ice cream sales in Kansas City in 2015, and you discover in 2015 ice cream sales were through the roof in Kansas City far more than any other year, and you also discover that to the glory of God, the Royals won the World Series in 2015. And so obviously if more Kansas Cityans would buy more ice cream, then that would help the Royals win more games, right? Haven't been buying enough ice cream, obviously, in recent seasons, but... But you see, that's just a correlation. If you do more research, what you might discover is because the Royals were winning more games, more people were going to Kauffman Stadium, and when they went to Kauffman Stadium, they bought more ice cream. You see what I'm getting at? You just, correlations are like that. Um, I don't have any tattoos. If I did, I'd get one that says correlation doesn't equal causation, and I'd just show it to people, right? It's, correlation does not equal causation. You need to get that in your mind. Um, so there are some weak correlations, but no one's shown causation. Secondly, no one's found a gay gene. No one has found a gay gene. You will often hear chatter about this. Most of this comes from research by a man named Dean Hamer in 1993, uh, who was working for the federal government at the time. Uh, he is uh, self-identifies openly as a homosexual himself, but he's doing research on some, uh, some cancer, and that uh, bleeds over into research on uh, genetics and homosexuality and he claimed that in a sample group he had of 40 homosexual brother pairs that 33 out of these 40 homosexual brother pairs had co-inherited genetic information in a region called XQ28 on a chromosome that these men got from their mothers and so he claimed to find some sort of link uh, to his credit he didn't claim causation but when it went out into the press the press reported it as causation he never claimed that so XQ28 is not a gene. It is a gene-dense region. There's lots of genes in it. So he didn't even find a gene. But long story short, for years, a lot of people were saying, well, we're having a real hard time replicating his data. We can't replicate his data. But it got repeated a lot. 2019, August 30th, 2019, in the journal Science, the largest study to date on genetics and homosexuality, some people out of Great Britain, a sample size of 474,000 people. And for those of you who know anything about DNA, they went down to the base pairs, the G's and the A's and the T's and the C's of the DNA of all 474,000 people. The science has rocketed forward at quantum leaps. They're able to crunch all that data now. It's just amazing. So here's what they found. There is no gay gene. They found no connection between XQ28 and homosexuality. And the lead author of the study, Andrea Ghana, who would disagree with my moral stance, but she said, and I quote, there is no gay gene. But she went on to say about 8% to 25% of homosexual behaviors explained by genetics with the rest influenced by environmental and cultural factors. Hey, can I tell you something? About 8% to 25% of everything you do on any given day is influenced by genetic factors over which you have no control. That doesn't throw any Christian out of your Jesus tree. Listen, all of us are somehow influenced by for some of its operant conditioning. You know, we just kind of get used to things. For example... Uh, I refuse to eat barbecue on vacation. You know why I refuse to eat barbecue when I go on vacation? Because I live in Kansas City, Missouri. That's why. I mean, it's like, it's the closest argument the post-millennialists have is that, you know, existence of Kansas City barbecue. But anyway, 
uh, that and Lambert's. But the point being, uh, I'm glad some people know who post-millennialists are. That, a lot of churches say, what do you mean? I have to explain it. It's bad when you have to explain a joke. But anyway, uh, here's the point. If I drive by Jack Stack Barbecue and uh, I smell the aroma coming out of Jack Stack Barbecue in Kansas City, my favorite's actually Gates. But I drive by those barbecue places, my mouth starts watering. If I'm on my motorcycle riding around, I smell it through the helmet. I'm like, oh, I just, you know what I want? I want barbecue. Some of that is out of my control. Well, it's been operant conditioning. I've had it before. Some of that is rooted in just human desire for food and basic needs, right? That doesn't excuse gluttony on my part. So there is no gauging. That's just a fact. Third, I would say this. There's some contributing variables have been identified, but the etiology or the origin of these things is uncertain. People talk about brain differences in twin studies. For those of you who know about epigenetics, epigenetics is this fascinating science about these uh, chemicals that turn on and turn off genes and tell which gene to work, and, you're, and they can all be changed by behavior. It's fascinating. Listen, theologically, we understand the origin of these things. Genesis 3, Romans 5, the fall, we understand it. So theologically, we understand. This side of the fall, tracking, this side of Genesis 3, we're trying to figure out where all these things come from. No one knows. That's just the fact. No one knows. The theory that's getting the most traction is what's called the prenatal hormone theory. The prenatal hormone theory. It works something like this. It's relatively easy to explain. As a baby is growing in the, in the womb of a mother... The body differentiates into male or female first. And then the theory says that later on in pregnancy, the brain differentiates along male and female lines. So for all the identities across the LGBTQ spectrum, the theory that seems to be getting the most traction now is this. It's what I call it the prenatal hormone theory. It's the best term I know for it. It could just be called the prenatal theory. But basically it's this, that early in pregnancy and development, weeks 8 through 13, uh, the bodies differentiate consistent with the DNA, a male body with male DNA, female body with female DNA. But then what happens, the theory says, is that um, when the brain differentiates later, that sometimes male brains differentiate more like female and female brains differentiate more like males. Here's what I, so the idea is you get someone with a, um, a male body, but they feel like they're a female or they have the attraction toward other males or a female body and they feel like a male and they have attraction toward other females. It's a fascinating theory. It has a, 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 sim, a simplicity which is elegant to many people. They find the argument appealing. But what I would tell you is there's just very little evidence for it. Um, so the theory is getting more traction. But there's just not a lot of evidence for it. What you will find in most studies about homosexuality in science is this. The sample sizes are freakishly small. And then often there's a problem of sample distortion. Any study is only as good as the sample you get. And sometimes the samples have been cherry-picked to help people find something. You know how this works in politics. They get exit polls to find what they want to find. And sometimes the same things happen in science. Not all, but sometimes. So let me just summarize. There's no gay gene. There have been some variables that show a correlation at a low level. We're not sure how those correlations work. But there's correlation, not causation. And what I would also tell you is the science has no predictive value. What I mean is no one's discovered anything where you can go to Arrowhead Stadium on a Sunday afternoon with 76,000 people, 
pull a random sample of brain scans or DNA or whatever else you're looking for out of that crowd and predict who is LGBTQ and not. And I'll just tell you, in science, predictive value is everything. For example, I can predict for you, whether you're at the North Pole, the South Pole, or anywhere in between, if you get water to 100 degrees Celsius, it's going to boil. That has predictive value. There's nothing like that in the science about um, sexual orientation. It just has no predictive value. All right, that said, let me give you a quick summary of the Bible and LGBTQ issues. Given that's these scientific data and arguments, what's a quick survey? Let me say a few things. I'm going to move quickly. First, in 2014, a young man named Matthew Vines from Wichita, Kansas, wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. He claims no one can be a born-again Bible... He said, excuse me, I, I said that incorrectly. He claims one can be. He claims one can be a born-again Bible-believing Christian and be in a committed same-sex relationship. He is winsome. He's uh, handsome. He comes across very well on camera. And he presents himself well in public. He projects well. And his YouTube videos have gone viral. Millions and millions of people have watched it. He's almost an internet celebrity. So the question is, is Vines right? The short answer is, well, no. I was surprised when his book and his video became so popular because as someone who spent my life studying these issues, he's not saying anything new. He's only kind of dumbed down for the masses things that people were saying up here in academia for 50 years. But the short answer is no. Acad um, I, let me just give you a summary of a few Bible points. First of all, the gift of gender and the gender binary is part of the goodness of God's creation. Genesis 1.27 says God made, them in his own, God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The gender binary is part of God's will and God's design for creation. And we live in a day right now when people are denying the gender binary. I will just tell you in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, when Jesus is asked about marriage, he quotes Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and he reaffirms the gender binary. Uh, we're living in a day and age when the gender binary is being denied. And it is, it is disturbing. Where this pops up most frequently is in high school and college athletics right now. Some of you may remember, the young people may not remember, the greatest female athlete in the history of the world, in my opinion, history of the United States for certain, is Florence Griffiths Joyner. She died too young. Some of you remember Florence Griffiths Joyner. She won the 100 meter and the 200 meter at the 1988 Seoul Olympics. And uh, she and Evelyn Asher ran the last two legs in the 400, uh, 4 by 100 relay. You almost felt sad for the rest of the world when America's got Florence Griffith Joyner and Evelyn Ashford in the last two legs. It's like, well, who's going to win this? Gee, I don't know, right? But so young kids wouldn't know Florence Griffith Joyner. She was really a fabulous person, and I mean that. She was a great person on the inside and on the outside. And she had a, a sense of style. Other female runners would Pull, pull their hair back in a tight bun to cut down wind resistance. She had all that long hair just flowing in the wind. And she had real long fingernails. She was able to run so fast, you just thought she was going to create lift and fly at some point. I mean, and she, uh, she died too young. The reason I mention her, she still holds the 100-meter world's record for women and the 200-meter world record uh, for women. She's held that since 1988. And it doesn't look like anyone's going to break it anytime soon. 
She's the greatest female athlete in the history of the United States. Why do I tell you that about Florence Griffith Joyner? Because in Missouri high school sports, two male athletes, teenage boys from Missouri, have already beaten Florence Griffith Joyner's time in the 100. Six teenage boys from Missouri have already beaten her 200-meter uh, time. So you have teenage boys in Missouri that are beating the world record time for the fastest female who ever lived. Why do I tell you all that? Because when boys go through puberty, they develop muscle mass and a bigger bone structure and a bigger heart engine. That means they are just physiologically different from males and uh, females and they're going to run faster and stronger. That is not putting down women. That's not elevating men. That's just a fact. But we live in a world right now that is in complete denial about biological facts. And what I'm asking is for us to step back and just say, you know what? God made boys and girls different. Viva la difference. Let's celebrate it. Let's not deny it. Secondly, the biblical standard is that sex was designed by God to be celebrated in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Genesis 2, 24. This reason a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and they were naked and not ashamed. It's a man and a woman, so it's heterosexual. It's one man and one woman. It's monogamous. That's God's standard. Third, same-sex sexual acts are a distortion of God's design for creation. Romans 1, 24 through 27 is a very famous passage. I know you know it, but I'm going to look at it for just a second. I need to say just a couple of things. It deserves great exegesis, but let me say a couple of things. First, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Do you see that term right there, natural and unnatural, in verse 26? That term, those terms, natural and unnatural, were used in extra-biblical literature in the first century B.C. and the first century A.D. outside the Bible to describe homosexual behavior. There's no doubt what Paul's talking about. His original audience understood that. Verse 27, the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And I would just tell you the phrase, the words that Paul uses for man and woman in this passage are not the words that were normally used in Koine Greek. They are the words from the Greek translation of Genesis 1:27. His audience, when they heard this or it was read to them in the church at Rome in you know, 55 AD, whenever that was, when they heard this, they knew automatically, oh, he's going back to Genesis again. That's, what he, that's to what he's referring. Um, so the, the Bible is not unclear on the topic. The Bible is explicitly clear on the issue. The Bible's not vague. It refers to both lesbian behavior and male homosexuality is forbidden. And what I want to say is our, uh, our neighbors have successfully framed the debate about love versus hate. Well, love wins in the end, and, you know, love wins, and that's a famous phrase, and we're not about hate, and if you disagree with us, you're about hate. And I'm trying to challenge a culture and challenge maybe one individual to reframe the debate instead of love versus hate to truth versus error. To reframe the debate Fourth, the sins of gender distortion and sexual immorality can be forgiven like any other sins. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
The sins of gender distortion and sexual immorality can be forgiven like uh, any other sin, including homosexual sin. Here's what it says. Paul says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor uh, uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That refers to uh, Malakoy, someone who plays the passive part in male homosexual intercourse. Nor homosexuals, that's the word arsenokoitai, refers to the other person in a homosexual encounter. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. First of all, uh, sometimes I hear a lot of chatter in church about this us versus them. You know, those people branch, you know, them. And we focus on the first five vices in this vice list. Let's look at the second five. Before you were saved, anybody in here a drunkard? Before you got saved? Anybody here that was covetous? Anybody here was a reviler or a swindler? It's not that the gospel is for them. The point is the gospel is for us, everyone. None of us are any closer to Jesus apart. If the grace of God hadn't come in, one of my favorite books ever written is by Harper Lee. It's called To Kill a Mockingbird. If you're only going to write one book in your life, make it good. She did. And so To Kill a Mockingbird, and the hero in the book is the lawyer Atticus Finch, who's defending an African-American man wrongly accused of murder. And one day, Atticus is talking to his daughter, Scout, and he's explaining to her what he's trying to help this man. And he says something to her, if you want to understand someone else, you've got to get in their skin and walk around a little bit. Someone else may struggle with temptations that you and I have never wrestled with. Can we at least have a sense of mercy, not to affirm that we give in to temptation, but a sense of mercy where we can say, I haven't walked where you walked, but I'm trying to understand where you've been. And I want you to know the Jesus that died for me is the Jesus that died for you. And look what it says. Would you? We skip this so often. We stop with the vice list. But look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Thank God, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God forgives sin. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for these things. And I want to tell you, whatever the world is offering you right now, whatever somebody on their webpage is offering you, whatever some internet influencer is trying to tell you, whatever some advocacy group is sharing with you, my my plea with you is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than your own desires. Your heart's telling you to go do this. And my plea with you today is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The blood of Jesus is sufficient and he died for you. He's better. Well, how do I engage my LGBTQ friends? Let me give you a few things. First of all, the major worldview issue is biological determinism. Our friends are accepting the born this way premise We are challenging that premise. That leads to dissonance. Okay, there was a point in time in my life when I was very far away from God in great rebellion. People tried to speak into my life. They said, Alan, you're doing A, B, and C, and you're making choices D, E, and F, and those have certain outcomes, and we strongly urge you not to go on that path. And when they told me that, I said, man, I get it now. Thank you. I won't do that anymore. Okay, great. No, that's not what I said. Uh, do I have any country music fans here? Anybody likes country? I mean, real not this stuff they're playing today, which is like hip-hop going with a steel guitar. No. Do any of you remember a guy named Tom T. Hall? My answer 
when people tried to give me words of correction when I was far away from God was something like Tom T. Hall. Hey, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. I don't need anybody to tell me what it's all about, okay? That was my response. Don't be, don't be surprised if you proclaim a biblical message and someone's initial response is, I can't stand you and I hate your guts. We are introducing dissonance. But that's okay. That can be helpful. Let the distance be there. Secondly, I think we need to say this, and I would say this to anyone here this morning. I think you are telling me the truth when you say, I didn't ask for these feelings. I told you correlation doesn't equal causation. The data is weak. But there is enough data out there where it makes me want to say, I understand you didn't ask for this. I understand. I appreciate that. Remember, I'm trying to walk where you've walked. So understand, lots of us have things for which we did not ask. But at the same time, what you feed will grow. You may not have asked for this, but what you feed will grow. Third, Christians are setting a poor example in sexual purity. I'm going to talk to the church for just a second. We're setting a poor example in sexual purity. I'm a preacher. I'm basically a preacher that wound up teaching at a seminary. And um, I have a, a binder. It used to be a folder, but it got too big. I have a binder, a large three-ring binder on the shelf right next to my desk. It's got one word on the front. That word is fallen, F-A-L-L-E-N. And that binder is full of stories from the press about pastors and Christian leaders who've done all sorts of immoral and godless things. And I keep that binder there as a reminder to me. My goal is my name never winds up in there. That's the goal. But let me tell you, there are names in that binder I never dreamed would be there. I mean, recently I put names in there like, no, not him. Some of them, you know, some of you wouldn't know. Some of them, just people I, I served with, they never made it in the press. I just had to write their name in there because there's you know, no article about them. But they're just gone. And recently, in our own denomination, a report was released that put some of our leaders in a very bad light. I shouldn't say put them, a, a better term is revealed. That's a better term. We are setting a bad example in sexual purity. Think about how many Christian couples, heterosexual monogamous, live together before they get married in the church. And they both swear, I'm down. Well, we're born again, but we're going to go live together. And the Bible says, no. No. With all that stuff going on, can you understand why our LGBTQ neighbors get really frustrated with us when we start saying, y'all shouldn't be doing that? Do you understand their frustration? So much so, I want you to listen to me. When our LGBTQ neighbors hear us, sometimes what they think they hear us saying is, well, you, they, you're saying that we're broken and you guys aren't. That is not what I'm saying. It is not that I'm not broken and someone else is broken. The fact is, all of us are broken in different ways. But Jesus is the answer for everyone. So Christians are setting a poor example in sexual purity. Fourth, Christians never have the liberty to be unkind. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28, Jesus says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who revile you. Man, that's hard. We never have the liberty to be unkind, to respond in love. It doesn't mean that we 
compromise our convictions, but we never have the liberty to be unkind. But they're being so mean to me. I understand you don't have the liberty to be unkind as a Christian. I mentioned this earlier. We're all broken. I'll move on and say this. When Jesus says he changes your life, it doesn't mean you will never, ever experience temptation again. Can I get an amen, right? Uh, that vice list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 mentions drunkenness. I think we've made a mistake in the church, and here's the mistake I think we've made over the last 50 years since the sexual revolution. Sometimes we as Christians have preached to people across the LGBTQ spectrum, oh, if you give your life to Jesus, he'll just change you and you'll never have to deal with that again. We're lying to them when we say that. Let me give you an example. Let me talk about drunkenness. You ever known somebody that was a drunk and then they got saved and they're sober for a year or two and then suddenly they fall off the wagon? Are you going to tell that person he or she is not saved? No, you are a Christian that has regressed back into temptation. But what do we do as a church? We come along beside you. We build you up. We're going to mercy, have, show mercy. We're going to pray for you. We're going to work with you in this. Uh, and I think sometimes we have given the wrong message to folks. What I can tell you is this, though. I can promise you this. I have never faced a temptation that I faced alone in the name of Jesus. No temptation has taken you except what is common to man. But God will make a way. Jesus gives you strength. And people talk about it gets better. You know, it does get better. The longer you walk with Jesus, it gets better. And it gets stronger. And he gets sweeter. There's no gospel song. It gets sweeter as the days go by. So what I want to tell you is if you're struggling with LGBTQ identity and you give your life to Christ today, you've just stepped into first round of about a 15-round fight. That's the truth. But it is a fight worth fighting. And here's the deal. You're not in this fight yourself because when you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. And I conclude with this. As Christians, our identity is in Christ and not the things that tempt us. Our identity is in Christ, not in the things that tempt us. Um, the LGBTQ advocacy groups have very effectively used stories with a persuasive value. The Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015 is a good example of that. Uh, some variables in that case, which you know, were heartrending to any person with some compassion. But stories give a snapshot into the details that we're wrestling with on any moral issue. And everybody has stories. I want to tell you a story. And I have to tell you, if stories shape the way we think about issues, this one shapes the way I think about LGBTQ issues. And it's true. I was the pastor. Uh, Miss Lisa and I served... Turner Memorial Baptist Church in Garner, North Carolina for eight years. For seven of those years, we lived in a parsonage. My wife is now post-tribulational in her eschatology after living in a Baptist parsonage for seven years. She's already been through the tribulation, but that's another sermon. But my next door neighbors for five of those years, five of those years were uh, uh, two homosexual men, Daniel and Dennis. I want to tell you right up front, they were not good neighbors. They were great neighbors. Some of the best neighbors we've ever had, Daniel and Dennis. They had been uh, 
homosexual marriage wasn't legal at that time, but they'd had a, a service performed by them by a progressive church in Raleigh. And uh, they were my neighbors. They were great neighbors. Yeah, I couldn't get the deacons to help me fix the roof. One day I'm up on the roof trying to fix a leak. And Daniel, one of my homosexual neighbors, said, Preacher, you need some help. He climbed up there. So you've got the right-wing Baptist preacher and his homosexual neighbor fixing the roof on the parsonage when the deacons wouldn't. So that was interesting. So anyway, but we're... And uh, we got along, and I would share Christ with them. And, you know, we'd start warming up and getting friendly, and I'd start talking about Jesus, and they'd push me back. And then we'd start warming up and getting friendly, and I'd start talking about Jesus, and they push me back. And this goes on and on and on. Uh, the last time, I, they moved away, bought a house, a nicer house up in town, and they moved away. Last time I saw them, a mutual friend had died. They were at the funeral, and I, I chatted with them. for. I remember I could still see them walking out of the funeral home, their backs to me as they are walking out together. Um, about a year after they moved away, there's a couple of members of my church. So one lady's a probate judge. Her husband was in law enforcement. And um, she came to me and she said, Brother Allen, did you hear about Daniel? Both these men are passed away now, I'll just tell you. She said, did you hear about Daniel? I said, no, what happened? It's not appropriate for me to tell you how Daniel died. Especially with children in the service. Her husband had been at the death scene and I got all the gory details. And apparently unbeknownst to Den Dennis, Daniel's involved in some practices that I'll just say are dangerous to say the least. And... Um, and he died trying to do things that God never intended anybody to do to the human body. We've all got stories. I don't hate my LGBTQ neighbors. And I don't fear my LGBTQ neighbors. I fear for anyone who does what God says don't do. And in the name of Jesus, I want to say... There's a better way. It may not be the easier way, but it's the better way. And it's always right to go God's way. And Jesus is better than our emotions and our desires. And I'm pleading with you as a group of people in Ozark, Missouri, not to write off your LGBTQ neighbors, but to go to them with the gospel. And they're not going to like what you have to say, but to respond with kindness and love and mercy and tell them about Jesus. Not all of them are going to be interested. Someone will. Would you be willing to be the one person that goes after that one, that one in the name of Jesus, that they might know Christ and the free pardon of sin?